a rare Wednesday episode, and Demetrius is here. He must uh, he must be really failing at his business. He must really really be needing the uh, the support. So Demetrius, why don't you tell everybody how they can give you all their money? Yeah, well, thanks thanks for that. Uh, no, I um, <laughs> things are going really well. Actually, I've got a student coming in this evening uh, from. I think from California. I have to double check. Anyway, um, he uh, it's going good. I do three day boot camps. People come into my place, they fly into Minneapolis, I pick them up at the airport, and then we train pool for three days. And uh, it's darn incredible what happens over three days. And there's you know there's many types of videos available online and, and different kinds of Zoom lessons. But spending three days side by side with somebody that can play pretty well, and then just you know, as we go through, of course, we're, we have objectives and skills we're building and overall stuff. But then it's all the little stuff about just like, here's how I run these four balls. And then you get up and run these four balls. And we're working on whether whether it's the rhythm and the pre-shot and how we're dropping on the balls or just the, the tempo of the stroke or just the, my last student was real, like, quick, jittery, fast. Like, it seemed like really rushed and frantic. And it's like he's just so smooth and calm and everything. cues moving slower. His tip's more accurate. And, of course, we built a lot of skills and worked on patterns and started building good runouts. But it, it's there's other transformations that take place they don't even know about. So, anyway, it's a great experience for aspiring uh, great pool players. Uh, I've got uh, information on my website, which is mnpoolbootcamp.com. Uh, MN is for Minnesota. So Minnesota pool bootcamp, it's mnpoolbootcamp.com. And things are going well enough. I just added a calendar. So I've got my pricing information there on my webpage and I've got a calendar showing my next available as well as some availability so that you can get, um, I don't like those little submission forms. We have to type in your name and, you know, send an email out and hope that somebody gets back to you before you find out what's going on. I've got everything right there on pricing and availability. So check it out. And, uh, yeah, maybe we can meet up someday. Pretty fun. We'll give a shout out to Nick DeLeon. We got to uh, hang out quite a bit at the Super Billiards Expo. Congratulations on. Uh... Actually, Nick's been playing really good lately. He's, uh, he's. I think he's. If I'm not mistaken, I think he's fourth overall right now in the standings. Which I, I suppose we'll have to talk about that a little bit too. The it's it's crazy to think there are 46 Americans that are ranked higher money wise right now than Sky Woodward. Anybody anybody want to talk about that? Wow. Wow. That is wow. Temporary, I think. We can can call that temporary, I think. Probably. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely early on still. And, I mean, he's not playing the events. I mean, what what can you do? I mean, you've seen it it there with the World Championships, you know. You've got got quite a few big, big events. Quarterfinal, you shoot up that uh, leaderboard into the top ten just by hitting a quarterfinal now. There's so much money in these big events, so uh, it's very early, very very early. Well, I think it's I think it's kind of crazy that uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the U.S. side of things, I think Nick is Nick is at a couple thousand dollars, like four, five, six thousand dollars or something like that, and he's fourth. And the European side of things, it looks a little bit different. So, yeah, again, <laughs> it's early. I mean, it's, it's yeah. so early. You've got the world. Cha- Don't moan. You've got the world champion. World champion is an American. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. Feels That's really good. Thing. Feels good. Yeah, feels good. Right. Well, well uh, I guess. Shout out to you, Nate, uh, for the for the tremendous job I think you did uh, commentating the NBA. Uh, NBL. At NBL out there. Uh, uh, three days 
steady. You're pretty much in the booth almost all the time. And you were extremely entertaining, I got to tell you. And, and oh, thanks, buddy. And, and you weren't afraid to stick your neck out and and uh, make assumptions in the middle of the racks and things. And, and I thought that was kind of cool, even though you weren't right all the time. It didn't seem to matter. Just went ahead and did your best that you could. Pretty fun to listen to you. <clears throat> Thanks, buddy. How much did you listen? How much did you watch? I watched a lot. I actually did. Yeah. I paid my five bucks. Cool. To watch I, I think it was pretty play. I paid five dollars. That's a that's amazing for me to do that, that's for sure. Yeah, I thought it was pretty awesome actually. And then an amateur ends up winning it. Uh Dell Sim, congratulations. Yeah, Del Sim. Uh, Del. Wow, did he play? Yeah. That's pretty impressive stuff. I mean, when you're getting into the box and you know, playing with some of the best players, you know, he's, he beat, uh, I mean, he beat Thorsten Holman in the finals. I mean, and how, I how strong Thorsten is that? I was going to crush him there after that first set. I mean, he was just on well, fire. Yeah. I think he beat him, what, nine to, was it nine to two, nine to three was, in the first set? He, he did. He crushed him. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, pretty fun stuff. Uh, yeah, and uh, Jeremy you... Fedkenhauer, I'm going to give a shout out to him from Wisconsin. For as well as he yeah, played, that, I, I've never seen such, him play that well. Well, I'll tell you what, his best game is big table eight ball by far. And okay. to be honest, like he had BJ Ushery down six to one in a race to uh, eight, and if he would have, and if he would have won that match, if he would have got that done, he would have been playing uh, Al Lapena for the uh, to get to the hill, and which is another amateur player who who made it deep into the event. So, right, how awesome would it be to see, uh, you know, a Wisconsin guy? Guaranteed fifth, six at that point playing an amateur. Right. Yeah. His his cue ball control was pretty awesome. The speed. I think he liked. I think Jeremy liked the speed of those tables. He he yeah. he was feeling it pretty good. Well, here. How does this sound? Del Sim beats uh, Kenny Tran, an amateur. Uh, then he beats Jason Lynch, who who played as a professional, but he's not a professional. Uh, but he's mostly a trick shot guy. Is what he's known for. And then he beats John Mora, eight to four. Shane Alba, a uh, player from Ohio, eight to five, beats Alapena eight to six, loses eight to two to Del or uh, Thorson Holman, and then beats Thorson Holman six to three. <laughs> I mean, Del Sim, congratulations, man! That's that's super oh, yeah. awesome. If I, and, and an amateur wins this event. Of course, the 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 idea of this event is you get to, as an amateur, you get to get into the box with professional players, and you get to you know. Try your try your hand at basically a free roll once you win one of these qualifiers to to take on one of the pros. Uh, I mean, I guess Demetrius, let's ask you about this because you're you're a pro player, but you know you're not like a an elite elite pro player. You know, some of these players are seven twenty ish range, and they'd be playing against you as a pro right around seven forty ish. What do you think about the idea of this as a farm system? Yeah, so you know it's tricky because some people know all about the NBL, uh, other people haven't heard of it. So in short. Though what they do is they try to they try to have a mix where you've got half you know top amateur you know half competitive tournament amateur players and half tournament professional players, and so the way it works is the professional players can buy into the event for a thousand dollar entry, whereas the amateur players can play qualifiers and win the entry so that they're if they win the qualifier tournament they get to play then where they're playing and and then on top of that the uh, don't they split the brackets where it's like eight pros on one side and eight amateurs on the other? And that something no, like so, that. Or 
So what, so what they do is uh, every amateur will draw another amateur, and every pro will draw another pro. So, so no matter seated, what the first round. at the first round. That way, so not only are you giving the amateurs a chance to compete with these pros without having to come $1,000 out of pocket, but they're actually kind of guaranteed the first round that they have a competitive chance. Now, sure. what's great about that is, is that amateurs can then get a chance to play with better players and even win money because you're in for 100 and if you win the qualifier, now you're you you get to play an amateur. Maybe you win an amateur match your first round. Next thing you know, you're you know I don't I don't remember the payout structure, but you I mean how much did uh, you know the, these amateur players? Just as an example, in this field, how many amateurs hit the cash in this field? So, so this is the crazy thing is like uh, I don't think it has the strongest pros that it could have had, of course. But uh, you enough. know, as far as like top amateurs or top pros, they still had Thorsten Holman, they had John Mora. They had uh, BJ Ushery, who's you know a great player as well. Uh, they had um, Earl Strickland. Uh, let's see who else am I missing here? And, and I mean, so those, the were amateurs, the top, those were the top. Those were so the we top. Those were the top We had an amateur win, and then what other places did they take that was in kind of in the money? So Thorsten Holman took second. Past that, uh, Al Lapena got. Uh, who's a Filipino? I think he's a he's a he's not a pro, but he's he's pretty good. Uh, he, he got third, John Mora got fourth, BJ Ushery and Shane Alba got uh, fifth, sixth. And you want to, you want to talk about a strong draw? Let me, let me tell you about, uh, Shane Alba, man, this is crazy. He beat, uh, so he, he beat his first round in amateur, amateur five, six. Uh, so he won on the hill six, five, and then he beat Earl Strickland eight to five. And then he beat Justin Martin eight to one. And then he lost to Del Sim. And then he lost six to four to Thorsten Holman. He beat Justin Martin eight to one. Yeah, <laughs> Justin yeah. Martin is playing really good pool right now. That's For all sure. I mean, so what whoa. did he win? What did Sean? So because I don't know uh, what. So he took fifth, sixth, or what place did he take? Sean Alba took fifth, sixth. So and what did that pay? So, those, uh, so let me see if I would love to know out. what first and fifth, sixth paid out. Because while you're looking that up, I'll so say first. Yeah, first place took ten thousand. Uh, yep. So that was amateur. Uh, Al Lapena took four thousand for third and amateur, and then Shane Alba took fifteen hundred uh, for fifth, sixth. And all and these guys, Lucas, were... yeah, yeah, sorry. And then Lucas Fracasa Werner, who's who played as a pro, but he's an amateur. He's he's playing really good pool right now. I'll tell you what. And then Dennis Spears also played as a pro. Uh, they got seventh, eighth, and then uh, at ninth through twelfth, Brett Ross, Jeremy Fedkenhauer, and Frankie Hernandez, uh, and Jeremy Fedkenhauer were amateurs that took money. Justin Martin and Frankie Hernandez were. So they paid out ninth through twelfth, so they got in the money as well. So and then and what they like, twenty eight players, and twenty nine players. Sorry. Okay, gotcha. So I mean, the bottom line is, is that they're in for a hundred dollars, and they're pulling out four figures and mother, of course. One fifty. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they're in for one hundred fifty. Okay, so I mean, it's it's yeah. next. They're in for next to nothing. To have a chance to win, you know, whether it's fifteen hundred or three thousand or or ten thousand, uh, and on top of that, they're getting a chance to play top players for money on almost what's a free roll, where there's not a ton of expectation or financial pressure. Uh, I've talked about it a million times. Uh, there's, there's, you have to, especially for these players that are, you know, I, I really believe that once you're in that like six forty plus range, you know, people talk about what does it take to get to seven hundred. I think that you can, you know, players that are 400, 500, 550, even 600, I think you can improve your game in your basement. I think you can technically improve your game doing drills, working on your stroke, working on your pocketing, working on your patterns. I think you can you can practice your way 
to a point. But once you're in that mid 600 range, you want to know what it takes to get to 700. It takes competition with great players that are pushing you, punishing you for mistakes, getting mentally tough, you know, getting your strength of fighting and grappling and moving and just coming with stuff. It, it just takes you you can't make a sword without, you know, heating it up to where you can, you know, shape it. And it takes the heat of competition against great players. And here's a chance for these amateur, you know, top amateur players to get that opportunity for next to nothing and have a competitive chance to win. I, I think it's one of the best things, you know, we talk about matchroom predator, all the great things. That's great for the top elite pros. When it comes to, when it comes to amateurs and regional players, I haven't seen anything better come for pool in, for than the NBL in my lifetime. That's what I'll say. I got to agree with that, hundred percent. Yeah. So there, there was uh, twenty nine total players. They paid out thirty thousand dollars. Sixteen thousand five hundred of it was won by amateurs. So over <laughs> half of the prize fund was paid was was won by amateurs. Uh, but a beautiful thing. <laughs> so then, if there for for people that are listening, I guess my questions to you all is, you know, of course, how can they? How can they get into? Um, how do they get signed up for this? And, and there is you know, there qualifiers in the area. Where do they find out? But then the other question I have is, what level do you guys think would be a good level to start entering and competing in these? Like what Fargo level? I mean, if you're a 500, you know, you're you're probably not going to win a qualifier, much less get far in this thing. Like what level would you think that you're ready to go fight for one of these? Six hundred. Uh, yeah, I would I would say six hundred. I mean, at the end of the day, like so. I don't know how things are for the rest of the people around the country, but you know, I've complained about this several times on the podcast. I'm a six seventy Fargo and there's nothing for me in Wisconsin. Really at the end of the day, like I can play in probably one event a month uh, at the most. Uh, really it, it comes down to, do I want to travel four hours and BJ Ushery, uh, we went out to dinner while we were there and he was telling us about like what he does for um, events. And he said that he, he plays every single weekend. And he will travel up to six to seven hours in a car every single weekend to play these regional events, whether it's, you know, driving to Virginia or driving to Florida, uh, Mississippi, wherever it is, he'll, he'll jump in his car every single weekend. He'll drive six to seven hours. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I do not want to sit in my car for six to seven hours one way every single weekend. At the end of the day, it, it, that's probably what it would have to take for me to be able to play an event every weekend. So if I can't play an event every weekend or even, you know, maybe once a month, what am I still playing pool for? Well, if it's to play in a bunch of regional events once every five weeks and, you know, try to get better that way, it just doesn't really work. Right. So there's got to be some sort of a vision that I that I can look forward to to, like, continue motivating myself to want to play. And. I mean, these events are really good for it. I mean, they're, they're a constant chance twice a year. At this point, they're trying to get it up to quarterly, so they're, uh, you know, four times a year, where they're going to have two qualifiers and one main event. And that alone, I mean, if, if they're able to do that, we're looking at two qualifiers plus one main event every quarter for a total of 12 events, just NBL for players like me, 600 to 700, where, you know, maybe most of your area is 600 and under Fargo's or, you know, some – something down below whether it's 550 520 480 whatever it is you're excluded from most of your pool this is like 12 times a year where you can actually get into the ring test your skills figure out how to get better at the game and continue motivating yourself to want to get better at the game i think it's a godsend for players that you know 600 to 700 uh or 720 really where you know if, if your area is getting away from allowing you to want or be able to play in events that 
gives you something. But I, I think to answer your question, I don't think there's any specific cutoff where like you're 585, so you're wasting your time to get into these things. At the end of the day, if you can afford the 150 and you want to test your skills, I don't care if you're 380. I mean, the only way like the only way to get better quick is to to constantly test yourself against better players and put yourself in those situations where you're playing against a 700, even if you are a 400 and you're drawing dead. Just giving yourself the opportunity to try it. I disagree, I, I disagree slightly there. I think, yes, if you want to get better, you should play against players that are better than you, but you shouldn't be stretching it out too far. You know, you shouldn't be playing as a 500, you shouldn't be playing against 700s because you're just not going to get to the table. You're not really going to learn anything. You might as well just watch them on YouTube. You know, you want to be, you want to be constantly seeking somebody who's 30, 40 points above you. You know, and once you, get, once you start to get to them, then you get to the next one who's another 30, 40 points above you know, don't go as a 500 looking for 700s to play against. They're not going to get you anywhere. It's you're going to get exclusive. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to get too much of a beat down and you're going to give up. You want, to, you want to be able to see some progression in your game. And that by picking people who are just a little bit better than you, wait until you're better than them, then get the next one and keep yeah. pushing. Go up the ladder. Uh, I, I don't know. I, not exclusively, though. Like you can, you can throw in a 700 from time to time. What, you know, what's, what's it going to hurt? Give Constantly me maintaining a. Constantly maintaining a vision of where you're trying to get to is is important too. I think. Yeah, I don't. I I think you can stretch too far. You know. I I think I think that there's there's some truth in what Jim's saying. I I would think that the number is a little bit bigger than a 30 40 point gap. Uh, you know, they say a hundred point gap dictates a two to one score margin. So if a 500 played a 600, in theory, they're going to win 33 percent of the games. And I think that that's enough games to where you're not blown out of matches. And then the beautiful part is. A lot of times when somebody plays somebody 100 points stronger than them, because they're losing the majority of the games, then they start feeling frustrated, discouraged, iced, not confident, and then they start losing a lot of the games, and maybe they're only winning 15% of the games or 10 or 20%, and all of a sudden, but but they're getting opportunities to where then if they rally and play well and, and, and regroup, they can win 30 40% of times and maybe split games for a while. So I think that 100 point is still a reasonable where it puts a lot of pressure and, and mental duress on the weaker player, but it, not to the point where they can't cope. But at Jim's right, there's a point at which it becomes so lopsided, it's no longer a contest and and it's not not healthy competition. But I, I you know, Howard Victory always said, you got to play players similar speed to learn how to fight. Better players to learn how to, you know, get improved and then worse players to learn how to win. You got to play a mix where you're competitive, where, where it's a little bit of a stretch and you don't just want to play players where you never see the table. Yeah. I can accept that. So, I think uh, that there's a question. My uh, idea. How close... My idea. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, I'm sorry. Well, I'm about to. I'm about to change the subject with the, one of the questions. So, if you want to expand, go on. I'll just say that for me, if you're going to play the NBL qualifier, uh, I would think that if you're 580 plus, you know, maybe maybe even 560 plus, play the, the the qualifier. Just go play. Just play. Get the competition. Give yourself a shot. As far as what level do I think you need to be at to have a chance of winning matches and maybe. Uh, cashing uh, in these events, you know, I would think that once you're 620 plus, you know, Nate's at 600, Rob's at 600. I, I, I don't disagree. I've, I've played, you know, I would be a pro in that thing, you know, and I would tell you, I've played uh, many players that are, you know, t that have taken sets off me that are in the lower to middle sixes. Um, you know, you, it's everybody that starts with a six is a heck of a player and should be competing. Sure. I agree. Especially, especially if you still have a vision of getting better at the game. Yeah. And testing your skills. So, uh, Mac, our, uh, question out there is, uh, how close is uh, Dell from being a pro player? Well, coming into this event, I believe he was a 695. 
is what he was coming into this he, now. He, he broke 700 for the first time. He broke, yeah. Yeah, so the first time in his career ever he broke 700 by winning this event. Uh, I think his, I think his Fargo went up seven points or something like that, maybe even more. Than, let me actually uh, get that. I, I remember seeing a, a post. That basically, basically beating Torsten, put him over the 700. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. What, what a lifetime memory for that. I mean, that might be his career moment. Like, looking back, you know, he might get better. I don't know how old he is or, you know, what his future holds. But I will tell you, if, if that's got – I mean, winning – you know, winning against Thorsten in the finals for ten grand, um, it's a well, pretty Well, I talked to him afterwards. I talked to him afterwards. I said, I asked him if this was his, the highlight of his career so far, and he's like, "Yeah, un undoubtedly." Yeah, he, he said, "Like, no problem at all. Like, this was the biggest win he's ever had." I mean, he only plays twenty. I mean, whatever you want to say about Fargo, he only played going into that event. He only played twenty-five points higher than I do. Now I think he's more battle tested because he's played in you know bigger events than I I have ever played in. But the point is, is like for all the people who like sit back and look like, well, I'm not that level, blah blah blah. Like he was 25 points for me, and I'm a 100% amateur all day every day. And I mean, it just shows that if you have the best day of your, if you have you know the best weekend of your career, you can beat these players. And okay, the I, only I mean, way that I, you can do it is by getting out there and playing. I still, I still believe that seventh. I, my personal opinion is seven twenty is too low to be called a professional, in my opinion. In the U.S., it's not though. In the U.S., it's not. We have a different it's level. Not, that's it. Is is Fargo is Fargo an American system or is it a world system? Well, well, seven twenty is twenty seven. Or sorry, seven twenty is not what Fargo says starts at a pro. That's what BCA basically considers. And that's what uh, the okay. NBL uses. So that is a, that is an American adaptation to a system that exists. That's a worldwide system. Yeah. So if, if the EPBF wanted to say professional starts at 760, that doesn't yeah. invalidate well, the 720. Yeah. It just means yeah. that, you know, that's your adaptation to the system. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think it's awesome. I mean, good for Del Sim. I, I, I love the dude. I hate the dude, but I love the dude. Uh, he's he's a great ambassador. You know, he's just sitting back, having fun. You're never – good luck finding anybody who's going to have a, you know, bad word to say about the guy, uh, unless you don't like UK humor. <laughs> no, but and, and, and don't underestimate how much of a boost this is going to give the NBL. Oh, yeah. Because so. that's, all, all the amateurs out there around about the, 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 the 680 to the 720, oh, yeah. thinking, I can win one of these now. They're maybe hanging back thinking, oh, you know, is it really worth it? Don't be surprised if they all, all of a sudden have a massive influx of, of new players that are, are going to try and play in the next event because you they've watch, seen it. They'll snap one off. I beat him last time I played him last year. I pumped him or whatever. Or, or Yeah. There's going to be a lot of players that are going to, so. going to take interest and think this might actually be worth playing now. Yeah. So I hope so. Now I'll have to bring him on the podcast and talk to him. The NBL now has, has the eight ball and then it has the 10 ball, correct? There's two separate yep. tournaments. So two big national tournaments a year, one eight ball and one ten ball. Mm -hmm. And how many qualifiers are there in, in Wisconsin for that? So I only ran one this time. So I, unfortunately, in Wisconsin, there is nobody that wants to host this thing. Um, uh, the idea is like Wisconsin, most of the most of the places in Wisconsin that have big tables, their their vision is not really in pool. So like the brass ring in, in Madison, Wisconsin, the guy who owns it, he's just not interested in promoting pool. You know, he's, he's interested in getting his college students in there that are paying 20 bucks an hour for a table and buying drinks and blah, blah, blah. And I, I mean, I completely get it. I completely understand. Pool players aren't 
pool players aren't paying his bills. The, you know, the ball bangers are. Uh, Romines held one of these and, you know, uh, they're not interested in, again, anybody who's in the Milwaukee area knows that Romines really doesn't want anything to do with pool either. Uh, there is the Q Club in Waukesha, but they ended up getting rid of all their tables and bringing in bar boxes. Uh, I held this at the Varsity Club, and there was only five tables there. There was seven the first time. Uh, again, bar boxes are paying the bills, so Jeremy West took out two of his big tables and put in two more bar tables. So there's only five tables there, and I ran into a huge issue last time finishing the event uh, because I didn't know he got rid of two tables until I actually showed up the morning of. So oh. Oh, no. uh, there's a there's a there's a few other places in Wisconsin that potentially could hold them, but as of right now, like we're struggling to find any place that'll that'll hold one of these things. And until we are able to find like a permanent home where we could do these things, what does the care room yep. have? The big tables. Uh, the care room has seven, but uh, Dave isn't interested in running any events that aren't his own. He he has such a success with uh, the events that he runs that he doesn't need to bring anybody else in to do events for him because. Whenever he runs an event, he gets 96 players for him. So why would he why would he outsource it to somebody else? Is essentially what I was told for him. So, but why um, why is it, why is Barbox so popular? I mean, is it is it a, a bit of a is it a, is it sort of a, a, an ever decreasing circle? You know, if you've got an establishment, you've got a room, you can get more bar boxes in, which means that if people come to play. The likelihood is they're going to have to play in a bar box, therefore they just like bar box more. So then they want more bar boxes. Would it not be? Yeah. Why, why are people choosing to play on it? Is it be, is it because it's the only thing they know, and the only thing they have accessibility to, or do they really prefer to play bar box than nine foot? Demetrius, what do you think? Yeah, and Ryan asked a similar question about did um are, is the lack of uh, nine foot tables impacting the opportunity? So there's. There's no doubt that we are, I, I, in my lifetime, I've seen a huge trend. I started playing pool in the Midwest in the 90s, mid-90s, and it was primarily nine-foot tables, and then they had some bar table tournaments. Uh, I think in general, we've seen, we've seen a movement towards shorter sets, smaller tables, and handicaps. Uh, it started with shorter sets first. You know, back in a long time ago, the U.S. Open used to be racist to 15, and then it went to 13, then it went to 11. And I, I still remember the commentators talking about how short a race to 11 felt. Uh, and now, uh, early rounds of the U.S. Open are raced to nine. Uh, we see, you know, and and amateur events, and then we see uh, go from nine foot to seven foot right around. Uh, it started happening in the late 90s, and by uh, by the 2000, most of the tournaments were on a bar table, and our last big table tournaments were like 05, 06. And next thing you know, it was all bar table. And so now it's all bar table. It's all race to five. Finally, right around 2010 to 12, everything started going handicap, handicap, handicap. So what do these three things have in common is they're all they're all ways to, re, to reduce the skill, uh, the, the skill edge from the better player. So that, um, you know, if uh, if I played somebody race to nine, nine, nine foot table, I might win a lot of the matches. But when it starts going to race to five on a bar table. I've, I've got an edge, but it's not nearly the same. And now you throw in, you know, a two game to seven spot and it starts getting even tighter. And uh, and then you Fargo cap it and kick out the top level players and, and have 17 different divisions. So everybody's, you're a A, B, B, A, C <laughs> player. So you play against these other three guys. No, really, it's, it's like you go to it and it's like, so the bottom line is it's a pressure to where the more people that feel like they have a chance to win, the more people in theory are going to show up. But, it, but you said it's a spiral, Jim. You go down that road too far and you counterfeit the contest and you counterfeit the game. So I've never talked about this because I get to go off. I'll just say, if you're going to do this, 
I've I've invented the greatest handicapping system in pool. It is perfect. Nobody can sandbag. Nobody can steal. It's perfectly fair to everybody. You show up. You open up the table so it's free play. Everybody hits balls for fun all day, and you raffle off cash prizes. There, everybody's even. Go ahead. And so that's, but it's for these reasons that I do not compete in Minnesota or Wisconsin anymore. Uh, I have not. I you have not seen me play a tournament here for years. Uh, you, I just, I, if if something broke inside of me, I've also unsubscribed. Anytime on my Facebook feed, I see any flyer that has a Fargo cap, a handicap, or anything like that, I just unsubscribe from the group. Boom, I'm done. I don't follow it. I can't even look at it. I just find the whole thing gross. So I'm out. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I, I so I, I <laughs> yes. I'm with him. I'm with the both. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. But I, I think there's I think there's also um I mean I think the pool rooms and the bars also have a little bit to do with it as well. Cause I what what we saw around that time was like pretty big spikes uh in, in like rent, right? So if you have a you know, if you have a five thousand dollar or sorry, a five thousand square foot room and a five thousand square foot room theoretically could hold I don't know, let's just throw out random numbers, 20 big tables. But it can hold 24 bar tables. Uh, if rent is going up and you need to find ways to create more revenue so that you can pay those rent bills, That's and you now, have, you, you now have four new tables that you could start collecting greens fees from, at the end of the day, like if you get to the point where you can't maintain your rent and your electricity and all that good stuff with, uh, with 20 big tables, you might have to take four of them out and put in five bar tables. And I, I think over the course of time that this has happened enough. And of course, you know, at the end of the day is, you know, if you're going to have a bar with one pool table in it, you know, you just your little dive bar that has, you know, $3 drinks and one pool table, you're not going to have a nine footer in there. You're going to have a bar table in there. So I, th I think the movement of having all of these bars have one, maybe two pool tables in there, as well as, you know, upping the rent at these different pool rooms, as well as, you know, just bars in general, at the end of the day, like, there's going to be a higher profit margin off using uh, bar tables than it will be big tables. And you but know, you know what? Though? Here's the place problem. You survive. If you go down that road, that's why a lot of our pool halls. Have, yeah, not only have they tore it up, but here's the problem: is they started by tearing out the nine footers, but now they're tearing out the bar tables. They're putting in, you know, uh, bingo and cornhole, and and they're and they're opening, you know, expanding the bingo. bar. <laughs> it's, it's like, listen, if you really want to go down that road. What if there was more profit in peeling out the bar tables and putting in a dance club? I mean, the bottom is like, do you want a pool hall or do you want to uh, do you want to you know try to maximize profit and figuring out you know who's drinking and how they're going to spend their money? And I guess there's a my my problem is you go down that road too far and you do these things like Brian Harmson saying is you know all these divisions and all these things you go down these roads too far and you create a different culture. So when I was in the '90s, everybody around was like. It was like you get in the battle and you know and you play tough players and you get better and it was like there was some pride in 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 your improvement and who you you know took sets off of and how good you could play at stepping up so there was a culture of like you know ambition and competition and now that culture has changed of course people are still competitive i'm not it's not black and white but the culture has changed out of where people are like well why would i play that tournament i can't win that but i can play this event and that's where i'm i'm gonna get the most out of that because i have a chance to and you know what? And there's, to be fair, there's some good points. You know, like we talked about, not overextending your your stretch. But I, I think that the more you create that culture, the more normal it gets to where now people are like, they just the people that are coming up in handicap bar table era, they that's they they think it would be alien to like, well, I don't play nine foots, and why would I play against top players? And I, it, it's like now all of a sudden, I, I feel like it's a it's like a printing money. It's like short term relief. 
but it's causing a bigger long-term problem. And I, it's not so easy to turn it around. Yeah. So uh, before we get into this, I, I did see two people. So I, I want to give a shout out to Nate Johnson and uh, Bill Askings. I got to meet these guys at the, the Super Billiards Expo and it was awesome. So uh, we'll give a shout out to you guys for partaking in the chat as well as getting to meet you guys. It was it was great. So uh, I guess, yeah, jumping into this idea, like I am not I am not the type of person who believes that bar box is going to hinder pool play as much as other people do, because at the end of the day, like obviously a bigger table is going to require a bigger stroke um that that's you know you got to be more it's going to require you to stay on the the good side of balls more often you're not going to be able to stroke the cue ball around nearly as much like you can recover on a bar table but those are just different tools uh that you develop i think that you can become a professional by playing on bar tables as well as on big tables either one of them they just require different things and if and if you get to the point where let's say you get to about where my level is let's say a 670 fargo by almost exclusively playing on bar tables, which I have, it's not that hard for a player at this caliber to to make the switch from a bar table to a big table. It just takes time, and you got to develop those skills. I mean, this is like exactly what you do, Demetrius. You know, I'm sure that you get a bunch of players that are exclusively bar table, and you can tell they're a bar table player within five to ten minutes of having them there. Uh, I mean, all you got to do is just find those voids and those skills and just start refining them. I want to hear what Jim has to say about that. What do you think, right, Jim? Let's say, let's say let's say we go to a nine foot tournament and it's handicapped. How many racks are you? How, how many racks am I having to give you based on our Fargos? Mine based on a nine foot Fargo. Yours is based, you say, on a sure. on a, a bar box Fargo. So what what's our points difference? About sixty points, maybe. Uh, yeah, something like that. So what what do you get from me in a race to ten on sixty points? I I would get probably two and a half, two to three games. To seven. Okay. You think that'd be enough? Based might be my Fargo's based on nine foot and your Fargo's based on bar box. Based you'd on a like, one single you'd, set? No, but you'd be, you, you'd be probably, getting ripped off. You'd be getting ripped off because your Fargo compared to my Fargo is sure. not but but what I'm saying is yes, if, if you're talking about if you're talking about right now, I'm talking about like refining an entire career based off of it. So Sky Woodward basically built a career off of playing on a bar box and then switched to a big table. Same with Justin Bergen. Right. Because to a lesser he, degree, even Shane Van Boning. Yes, but, but but these guys are doing it on a professional level. You, as an amateur player, like you just said, finding tournaments is very difficult for me for for you. So how do how is your Fargo ever going to be adjusted based on a nine foot game if everywhere you go is bar box? You're not going to go and play a U.S. Open. You're not going to go and play uh, the matchroom events. You're not going to be invited to the World Championships. How what tournaments are you going to play where your Fargo could possibly change into a nine foot Fargo? I call it a nine foot Fargo. You don't have well, them. I mean, the you same thing. Well, I'll say I'll say this: the same exact per. So I'm I'm 30 years old. I'm not trying to go pro anytime soon. Uh, I'm having fun with the game, and I play in events every now and then. You know, I've, I'm playing the I'm playing most of the Predator events, uh, the Predator Pro events. Uh, I'm gonna end up playing five of the the eight of those this year. So, but but one person that I, from Wisconsin that's playing every single one of them is Mason Cook. He's 21, 22 years old, and mm-hmm. You know, he's making that transition right now. All it takes is a desire. And he's 21, 22 years old, and all he wants to do is be a professional pool player. He, you actively have to choose to take part in seven-foot tournaments. You don't have okay. to choose to take part in nine-foot tournaments. Okay, sure. I, go, I, go back, I go back to this. He actively wants to be a professional pool player. Sure. He better start playing nine-foot. He is, exclusively. Yeah. 
yeah, you just, I mean, your initial comment was you could you could be a professional player playing mainly only bar box. No, at a certain stage you have to play nine two. No, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm, what's the biggest tournament you, you can win on a bar box? What's the biggest? Jim, tournament Jim, you, you misinterpreted what I said. You misinterpreted what I said. I said is you can start out being an exclusive bar box player and then make the switch pretty easily. I'm saying like once you decide that you want to be a professional player on nine foot tables, if you're a six fifty to seven hundred player exclusively playing bar box. You can make that switch to the big tables with six, seven, eight months worth of just refining the skills that you need to have on a nine foot. Based on what, based on what you said, what, what what we've just discussed about the situation in the states, Wisconsin being one of those areas, making that switch isn't easy because you don't have access to the tables, you don't have the tournaments. I think yes, I yes your I ability would dictate, your ability would dictate that you're good enough to just make that switch and adjust to a bigger table. But you have to be playing on these tables. You have to be playing tournaments week in, week out if you want to take it. All on it takes table. is buying a pool table, a nine foot table, and putting you, it. In you know basement. what? It's the sponsorship deal to pay for all. You know there are players in the past. I mean, Buddy Hall grew up playing on a bar table and switched to nine foot. And of course, it took him years of competing on a nine foot before he got top flight. Guy Woodward too, but, Justin Bergman. Right, but what I would say is is that you know, and Shane. I, it's an interesting case. I don't know his percentage of big table play. What I would say is, is that it depends on what, what you're trying to do. So like for somebody that gets to like, you know, upper 600s or hits 700 playing mostly bar table, and then they want to challenge themselves and start going to Derby and some other tournaments like that, uh, start playing more like, like what Mason Cook is doing, you know, playing all big tables and playing a bunch of events. Of course, he's going to acclimate and he's going to be competitive, but is he going to go on and become, you know, competitive at the highest levels you know when we look at uh anyway it's it's a tough thing and and so clearly clearly there's similar games clearly you're going to get you know but at some point you're going to have to make a switch to be competitive and then the question is how soon do you make the switch and is there gonna is that going to limit you from getting to the highest levels for most players whether or not they can get to 800 or 830 is not really a relevant issue so i think i don't know that bar tables are, are killing the majority is like they're not killing the journey for most players that are just trying to enjoy the game uh but the question is is it inhibiting our chances of having exactly a world champion that's really the only question and uh because otherwise i think that people can have a meaningful journey sure i mean our yeah, I mean, think... says here with, with, with the with the talent level of the pros nowadays is the nine foot are necessary or if the pool world went to a stand of seven or eight foot table for all leagues and pros, would that be easier to be to be all inclusive? Eric, that's it's only in America. Let's make one thing clear. Barbox really doesn't exist anywhere else, as far as I'm aware. You know? So to be to make it all inclusive, pool is a global sport, and the global sport is nine foot. So yeah, there's only a few countries that basically play seven footers. Is 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 the bar box harming the chances for a, for world champions? You could argue that perhaps it is. It, perhaps it's delaying people's careers. Perhaps it's stopping players from making that switch because they're earning enough on the small table that they don't need to jump to the big table. You know, how many players are you losing because it's still lucrative to be a good amateur or a, a lower level pro on the in the bar box? Yeah, I mean, all questions that I can't answer. But I, can I think imagine. that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. All I can do is speculate. There's a few games that you can play on a bar box that are harder to play than on a nine footer. I mean, you play, do you play eight ball on a bar box? Sometimes it can be more difficult because the balls are clustered more on that yeah. nine footer. They're spread out all over the place. I you know what though? Okay. So I, I'll just say one thing because I, I, 
It's fair. There are individual eight ball racks that are almost unrunnable. Of course, of course. What I would say is in general, though, if you told me that I had to break the balls 10 times and I had to see how many I could run out and I had to run out five of them, I had to run out five racks off the break without ball in hand. And you got a choice right. between big table, 10 ball, big table, nine ball or bar table, eight ball. I'm taking bar table, eight ball all day. I've got one story because this comes up on easy billiards like once every six months, which table is the hardest to play on straight pool. And, and people talk about the nine foot, the eight foot, the seven foot. And there was a lot of people that are always like, oh, seven foot bar table. It's so congested and blah, blah, blah. My Like every time I play that game, it's ridiculous numbers. I remember I was at a tournament with a friend of mine, Jesse Engel, and uh, we were warming up. Right. He says, I want to hit some balls to warm up. So we I said, let's play some scotch double straight pool on a bar table just to warm up for this bar table event. Our first inning, we scotch double 216. It was like. Our first inning, I just looked at him like, well, okay, I guess we're warm. Like, I think we adjusted. It's like that's, to me, bar pool is way, 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 way easier in any possible game and variation. Of course, it's easier for your opponents, too. So then it's tough. The mistakes are penalized. And it's it's equally difficult to compete against good players. But the gameplay itself is just totally different. The only thing I'll say to that, Demetrius, is generally speaking, it, de- it depends on, as a generality, you play on valley bar tables or uh, diamond, diamond or valley bar tables, and at the end of the day, like a valley pocket is like four point seven five. It's pretty hard actually to find a nine foot table with pockets that big. So on top of it being smaller, the pockets are usually a quarter of an inch bigger too. So it, it, it kind of if you're going to be playing a if if you if you sync up every single thing to be the exact same except for one's nine and one's a seven footer, maybe your argument doesn't quite hold up as well just because, you know, the pockets aren't quite as big. But at the end of the day, I, like, I, I think I agree with you. It's- I think distance is distance makes the game tough. Now, I will say one one closing thought I've got on this is I, uh, I for people that are in the Midwest and, and that all, pretty much all their access is bar table, I'm not minimizing the competition and the journey. You could have a meaningful journey. You could have a meaningful game. You could develop a good game of pool. The road, like, like what I'm talking about, what Jim's saying about, like, can you get to the highest level or could it stunt your career? We're talking about like down it would almost be like saying um if you work for a big company it's like well you can only move up so far in this in this company because uh the ceo is never going to retire well for 99.9 percent of the people they're never going to be the ceo as long as they can have a meaningful career and move up and pay their bills it doesn't really matter what what the top 0.001 percent what i say is that every game you know the game's always evolved so the way when i used to compete bar tables here's the way i would justify it it was first played as a lawn game then it was indoors on a big table. And then it was using the back of the base to hit the cue ball off the rail. And then it went to a cue. And then it went to leather tips. And then it went to vulcanized rubber. And then it went to bulk line billiards. And then it changed to straight pool continuous pocket billiards in 1908 on a 10-foot table. And then and then it went to nine-foot straight pool. And then it went to nine ball when it started becoming the era of road players. And, you know, the economy's going good and gambling is around. It switched to nine ball gambling game. But it was two-shot push out. And then when the TV came along and then they wanted to go to Texas Express. And that was the big change. And then jump cues came up. And then I started playing right there, 1994. And then after that, it changed some more to bar pool or to template racks and other changes. So if I look at that and say for hundreds of years, every single change that occurred was progress and evolution. And then once I started playing, that was perfect. All of history had completed its evolution. Now it's perfect. And then every change since then has been like degeneration or something like that. Like that's a little bit weird. Like I look at it like the game evolves. And a champion has to embrace it, develop all their skills, and evolve with it to be competitive in whatever arena. Like, so 
I don't think there's anything wrong with an evolution of bar pool, believe it or not, uh, at least for some of these things. I'm just talking about why it's happening, what the impact is. Uh, of course, though, I still get my preference that I do prefer nine foot. And I congratulate those that have, now have a bar, uh, nine footer coming into their house. I want a nine footer coming into my house. Got bigger eyes. <laughs> well, I'm going to cut it up into small chunks and just put it in the corner somewhere. <laughs> you can buy mine if you want. I'll cut it up into chunks for you. And I'll, put a, I'll, put, and I'll put a rasp in here. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, I guess I, let, let's use this as a segue to get into the Super Billiards Expo because I, I think that uh, what you just said is kind of perfect as far as like the evolution of the sport. And I am going to now make the argument that the Super Billiards Expo needs to be uh, evolved out of the industry. <laughs> and Ooh. what I mean by that, wow. what I mean by that, okay, so I, I was there as a vendor. So I, I, I was there as a vendor for two different things, uh, the the onboard uh, sportswear and the, the white carbon helping out. Yep, exactly. And I heard so many horror stories of that event when it comes to prize money. Um it, it's almost it's almost nauseating how much money that that event has to take in and not give back. So Jim, you look so good. Good. Uh, the women, the women, for example, there's 166 women with an $80 entry fee. Uh, so let's see here. Let's do some math. We have uh, 166 times 80. There's basically 13 over 13,000 dollars worth of entry fees taken in. And they ended up paying out like eight thousand. So, I mean, I get the idea that there is stuff needed to, you know, there, there's got to be green fees. I get it. Um, you got to make these events happen. Uh, I, it just bothers me the fact that you're taking five thousand dollars out of an event, adding nothing, and then saying it's a, an event for the players. And it, it it just drives me freaking bonkers to think that. This is just one event, too, by oh, the way. This is the open the, women's. So they took 40% straight out of it. They took 40% almost straight out of the event immediately just for signing up. The men had uh, $33 taken out of every single entry fee, and there was like 900 players in it. There was over 900 players in the open men's, I believe, and there was like $32 taken out of it. $30,000 was taken out of the open men's division. Are you kidding me? $30,000. Where's that money going? You're telling me that it that – like, you're telling me that it takes – maybe there's 200 tables there. You're telling me that it takes $30,000 plus another, you know, $5,000, and that doesn't even count, like, the, the team events that were happening. You're telling me it, that these places are costing you, you know, nearly $50,000 to set up this event? Where is this money going? And, and like, I think that it's just – we're just so used to it. And, and the, the women's professional event was advertised $5,000 more than what it ended up being. And this is straight out of like the women's professional. They said that online there was five thousand dollars that was five thousand dollars more in payouts. There was one woman less than what a full field was going to be, and there was five thousand dollars less that was paid out than it was supposed to be. Where's that money going? Plus, you're charging like ten thousand dollars per booth. There's like, you know, there's fifty to sixty booths probably set up something like that. I just, I, I think. 
going back to like 2000 and whatever, this is ran by Alan Hopkins. The player, the one thing the players have been whining about their entire careers is that nobody ever takes care of them, right? It's a doggy dog world and we deserve more as professional pool players. And why are you taking out all this money? And why are not we getting paid more? They, they've had so many players unions that have came up based off of the idea of this, that ended up just being a disaster for the industry because the players think that they deserve more. And then once your career is done, you go straight out there and do the same exact thing that you've been whining about your entire career. It just drives me nuts. And I'm, I'm going to end up getting all the numbers for this because I want to be exactly right when I, when I you know, talk about this further. But there is a lot of money in this event that seems to be unaccounted for. Well, can, and you just ask, you, can you not just ask them to open their accounts? Oh, I, I plan on it. I plan on trying to bring one of them on. Uh, I just, you know, I just got back from the event yesterday, so I haven't had the exact time to, to go through and actually account for all of this stuff. But when there's this much money that's missing from this event, and you know that's just going to be administration fees, whatever it's going to, whatever they're going to end up calling it, it just seems crazy to think that the player should be subjected to have to deal with this kind of stuff. And, you know, going back to 2006, 2007, whatever it was, when this industry basically fell apart, it became a dog eat dog world. And at the end of the day, like you got to get your own to survive. And I completely understand that. But at the end of the day, like you just can't, you just can't do this stuff with all the great things that are going on in this industry with like the NBL, you know, uh, the predator events, the matchrooms, matchrooms expansion, all of these amazing events that are going on there that, you know, are actually expanding the industry. All of these little things like this that are basically just, quick money grabs. I want to see them. I want to see them gone. Cause I, I think at the end of the day, if this, if this event isn't there, does the industry get hurt at all? I think you I brought mean, up a good point. When you bring up the NBL on predator, the fact is, is that it's, it's a market and, and that we need, if we want that event to improve or go extinct, then it's not, you know, then it's just, we need, we need other people to step up and do things and that are uh, more successful. The one thing that the Super Billiard Expo has going is that it's the same place, same time every year. So people can just mentally budget for it, know how it's going to work, know it's going to be, you know, know how it's going to be run, know that the matches are going to go down on time, everything like that. So I think that that shows. So any aspiring promoters, it just shows the value of being consistent. So much of pool, uh, you know, tournament directing is just being consistent, predictable, transparent. And that if you can do that over time, people are going to start showing up and playing your events. So I, I think that, you know, these predator events and the NBL are still fairly new. Not everybody is into the rhythm of playing them. Whereas everybody that's been going to the billiard expo for many, many players, that is their Derby city. You know, they can't maybe compete with the pros at Derby. So they go to these events because they can compete with the open amateur programs or the, you know, whatever. Uh, so a lot of people make that their Derby. And, and I think that, I think that, uh, you're right, though, that the competition in the industry is what's needed and we're seeing. And so I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on them. Uh, Rob, Jim, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, we've mentioned this before, you know, things are changing. Pool is upgrading, you know, and um, you've got players in there like Predator, Matchroom, NBL. And we talked about it with streaming services, people that are providing streams and stuff like that. You know, it's going to get better and better. Things are getting upgraded. If you don't come along with it, if you if you if you stagnate, or if you're not providing a a product that's up to standard, you're going to get eaten up in the long run. So, I mean, 
it's difficult for me to, to 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 comment on exactly what goes on at the billiard expo. But if they if there is something weird going on, uh, and if it's not legit or whatever, or they are ripping, it'll disappear like anything else. It'll die because there's bigger players that are going to provide something better. You know, there was ranking points that were provided for the Moscone Cup. You know, for or from sorry, not from Moscone Cup for the ranking for the nine ball yeah. ranking. You know, if that gets removed, do players do, do the big guys stop going? You know, does uh, that's these are the kind of decisions. Well, that, the big uh, guys weren't there to begin with, right? Well, Appleton and Jason played the final. You know, it's not a bad field. Uh, know, well, I, know, I know Jason was here for more than just playing. You know, he had his own he had his own booth there as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, like you said, okay, they weren't all there. It wasn't a huge amount of points, but I mean, it makes a difference. And yeah, again, um, half-assed work and uh, substandard products are not going to survive anymore in the industry because the bar is getting raised all the time by the big boys. So yeah, and I, I think uh, really... June Marie made a June Marie made a good comment too. Like they they were charging everybody just to be there. So whether you know. She's talking about the pro event, but you had to you had to pay to be into the event regardless if you weren't paying. So like just to show up and like go to the vendors and stuff like that, they charge too. I mean, I, who knows how much money they're making off of that? And I'm I'm sure there's a ton of expenses. I mean, I, I you got to rent out that facility for you know nine days or eight days or whatever the heck it is. I, I get that, but there just seems to be so much money that is missing from these events, and you know where is it going? Well, my my question is, I mean. Uh, Nate brings up a good point about junior players, junior players being allowed to compete. You know, when a junior player goes to a tournament, they're not even playing for prize money. They're not winning money going and doing it. They're doing it to participate in something and compete and, and have fun. So if we looked at this as like, hey, people are going out there to try to play pool for money and win money. Uh, maybe it's not a very good spot. But if you're looking at it like this is a great extravaganza for, you know, amateur players to come congregate and get a chance to play each other and have a good tournament. And some people do win some money. Um, at some point, if you're going there to have fun and just experience the atmosphere, then it's not a fail. It's only a fail if people are like, hey, I'm looking for tournaments that where, you know, I have a good return on my investment and have a chance to, you know, be profitable. So then, of course, so in other words, I feel like, um, it's almost like uh, maybe they're taking an entertainment fee out and it's more of an entertainment and fun event. And then, and then, so my questions are, I'm curious what they took out of the men's provision uh, and to see, because those are the guys that actually are trying to do this for a living. And then uh, at the same time, there is still, even if you could give them credit for an entertainment fee, I mean, there's, there's always a, a line where somebody can cross where it becomes a little bit excessive. And so, yeah, I, I, I get it. You'd have to look yeah, into the books. You'd have to ask ask the right people the right questions. Have a look into the books. I mean, me personally, I got no problem. I got no problem with the organizers making a little bit of a profit. You know, they're putting all the work in. They've got to get paid for the work they're doing. You know, why would they do it for free? So, you don't. Again, I don't know how much money is is, is missing. How much is not accounted for? How much is you know is other expenses? I would want to get if I'm going to put all this work into it. I'd want to get something out of it as well. I'd want to get paid. You know, somebody if somebody does a Calcutta, they pay ninety percent out. Where does the ten percent go? I'm taking it myself because I'm putting all the work in to make sure there's a Calcutta, you know? I mean, it's, where is, where is the line between I'm taking 10% for myself? And if it turns out that 10% is a hundred thousand, I'll take the hundred thousand. If it turns out 10% is a thousand, I take a thousand. I'm putting the work in to make it as big as I can. I'll take a percentage of it, you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, it, you know, maybe, maybe there's perfectly reasonable 
places for this money to go. I, I, I guess I'm just looking at the men's. And from what I was told, they took out $33 from every single one of the entries, uh, uh, $38 from every single one of the entries uh, on a $100 entry fee. You're taking out basically 38% of the prize fund to begin with. It's just, it's just crazy. Uh, Is there an industry standard? Like, you know, little Chris just asked, where's the line? And I would say that there's, there's, you could talk about some, some ethical, obvious, like if obviously if you don't take anything out and you run the event for free, that's obviously generous at a player's event, but you wouldn't expect it that. It should not be done. Yeah. And if somebody took out a hundred percent and they just lined their pockets and said, you know, you're just showing up here to play for 10 trophies and you know, whatever, then that would be not very player friendly and maybe not completely ethical. So what's the, what's the, is there a, it's a gray area. And I think the market gets to decide what's appropriate. Uh, so this is not, Nate trying to put direct pressure on somebody saying you can't do that. He's not Nate's not calling foul directly. He's just trying to communicate what's going on so that the market forces can act accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I yeah, I'm not even saying the Super Billiards Expo needs to go bye bye and you shouldn't support it. Uh, what I'm saying is, you want more transparency and where the money's going. I want more. Yeah, I want more transparency out of what's going on, and I also want to see that if if this doesn't work out. Uh, and this continues to do what, you know, if, if it, if it is as bad as it looks, then I think that the, you know, the industry should start waning it out. I think maybe you should, you know, if you have the opportunity to go to, I don't know, let's say a predator event in Puerto Rico or the super billiards expo, and like, you get to choose one of those two things, maybe you should choose the, the, the predator one support, support the things that you think are doing the best for the industry. And I think, you know. Uh, generally speaking, of course, the Predators par uh, partnering with the BCAPL. BCAPL doesn't exist everywhere. But maybe if it does, uh, you know, the Ohio Open, the Michigan Open, there's the, the, the event in Tucson for the Arizona Open. There's, there's all of these different events, even the, the Las Vegas Open. Uh, all of these different events, maybe go to one of those things instead. And if you, you want to have the same vendor opportunities, go to the one in Las Vegas. You know, it's support the support the events that I think that are giving back to the industry, not just pulling out seemingly tens of thousands of dollars from it and lining your pockets with it. I, I, I think at some point in time, we as the, the people of the industry need to start enforcing these things at our end, too. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of different reasons why people play tournaments. And that winning prize money is usually not it for most people because it's just, you know, it's it, forget about even if, okay, even if a tournament added a hundred, put all the money back in, the fact is, is that you've got travel expenses, hotel, you know, airplane tickets, you've got, I mean, it's so expensive right now. Uh, in fact, one of the, one of the reasons I had a, a Polish student actually that trained with me and he told me that in Poland, one of the reasons why the top players are coming out of Poland, he thinks is that it's because the, the the economy is so good there. He says that you can you can travel around and play tournaments. It's like basically about this a quarter of the cost relative to what our costs are here in the U.S. And of course, uh, the distances may not be as great either. So it's like he's he's talking about it like it's just prohibitively expensive to travel and play in the U.S. relative to a lot of Europe. And so he thinks, especially Poland. So my point is, is that if you're going to a tournament where you're going to be down fifteen hundred dollars on travel to play in an amateur event with huge fields you figure you're going to lose money. So you're not really going there. So I think most people that are going there might not even care that 
there's not much money, you know, left in the prize field because if they wanted to make the most money, they would stay home, fold that money in half and put it back in their pocket. So I think most people look at this as a vacation, a fun event. And, and not everyone's coming at it from a place of like, you know, where's, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, Alex, uh, and, Alex, Alex Bosch says there was 13,000 added basically. For the, yeah, well, for the men's division, it wasn't. And if you notice, I haven't said a single thing about the men's division. Okay. I, go back from the beginning. I never said anything about the men's division. $13,000 added for the men's division? That seems to be about on par. What I'm saying is it was $5,000 less than what was advertised for the women's professional. And then if you look at the amateurs by Jim, oh, wait, by Rob. Okay, he's back. Uh, if, if you look at that, like if you're going to advertise $5,000 more of payouts for the women and then there's $5,000 less and they don't figure it out until. So <laughs> this is the fun part about that event. They did not post any payouts for that event until like five or six days into the event. So there are players that are playing to get into the finals, the final 16 single elimination who still do not know what they're playing for. That's not transparency. Right. The the going into the last day of the event, I had a conversation with two of the, the professional women who were in the final 16. I won't name any names and throw them under the bus, but they were debating on whether or not they wanted to actually. They had a conversation with uh, a bunch of the women that were left and they were actually debating as to whether or not they were going to all as a group forfeit out of the tournament because the five thousand dollars that was missing. They, were, they actually had a conversation with that group of women to make a stand and actually collectively forfeit out of the tournament because of what, because of what the, the organizers were doing. Now I, I haven't talked to this person since then. I don't know what, what happened to make them change their mind. Uh, I probably should figure that out, but if you're, I mean, the women didn't feel good about it and we're no, we're only talking about the pros there. I mean, we're not even talking about all the other amateurs that are just so used to probably being stepped on that they don't, they don't care that, $30,000 of their entry fee is gone and evaporated. It just seems weird to me that if you're playing in an event with 900 players and your first prize as an amateur isn't up in like the 10,000 range, that's that's just weird to me. You're looking at 900, you know, we'll just say, I, if anybody here that was uh, at the event played in the open division and knows how many exact entries there were, please, you know, let me know in the comments. But I was told that the the entry fee was hundred dollars. Now you're talking, you're looking at ninety thousand dollars in entry fees, and I just seems like a, it seems like if you're playing for ninety thousand dollars in first prizes and like five or six thousand dollars for an amateur, that's pretty weird. I guess Dimitri says if you played in a tournament with nine hundred people, what Tom says about a thousand entries. I think it was somewhere between nine hundred and a thousand, but. Um, uh, if you played in a in a field with 900 players, what is the least amount of money you'd want to see in first place before you played in? Boy, I mean, uh, you know, honestly, my, my thought process goes immediately to like, what's the final, you know, 13th through 16th and 25th through 32nd? You know, I I would think that first place, yeah, I would think five or 10 grand, but I would really like to see that if you're if you're in the top 32, that you're making a couple, of, you know, 1500 or you know something like that. So, but okay, yep, you know, I. It, Fair enough. It's uh, I think, and I think it's important that, like what Jim says, I think we should, you know, talk to somebody from that event and get their press release and maybe get them on the pod so that, you know, um, we have all the information too. Because I, you, you were there, and so you've heard these conversations. You know much more about it. I think Jim and I are coming from a spot where we're just going off what you're saying, and so it's there's only, you know, of course, 
people are right. I mean, it is a business. They got to be profitable. There are market forces. There are different reasons for people playing. So um, I would certainly never get uncomfortable saying that uh, people can't charge money. <laughs> but uh, if there's something, if there was something beyond just a reasonable profit going on, then I'd want to know, you know, where it went and hear what they have to say about it. Yeah, Alex Bausch is a champion. Nine nine hundred. So basically, it's all essentially it's a hundred thousand dollars, and they paid out sixty eight thousand, sixty eight thousand seven hundred. So there's thirty thousand dollars that is unaccounted for. Well, I mean, it it, it I shouldn't say unaccounted for. It is. It's not there. So where thirty thousand dollars was redistributed somewhere else within the event, shall we say? Whether it, yeah, whether it's to administration fees, greens fees, whatever that is. Alex, so I actually I think this is kind of interesting. The uh, the women's professional bracket was pulled down. It's no longer online, so that's an interesting thing too. Again, going back to transparency, the uh, the link, all the links that I have for it are gone. So I don't know. Anyways, uh, let's let's uh, let's take a look at uh, the actual event itself. Uh, Jason Shaw wins the event over Darren Appleton. Uh, Billy Thorpe and Mario He uh, get third fourth. Ralph Suquet, Fedor Gorst, uh, Joseph Spence, and Oscar Dominguez get fifth through eighth. Warren Kiamko, Thorsten Holman, Met Vergara, Robbie Capito, Kang Lee, Jonathan Pinnegar, who is like that guy is a wild, that guy's a ride. Uh, John Mora and Earl Strickland get nine through uh, 16. I actually watched, I watched uh, the Jonathan Pinnegar match and uh, Mario He. And there was a stretch where, um, like the first or second rack. So Jonathan Pinnegar was playing. Their match ended up taking, it had to have taken crap, close to two hours. Let's see if I can actually figure out what um, what the uh, the scheduled matches were. But like their match had to have taken like forever. Actually here. Uh, Mario, he, their match lasted two hours and three minutes. And the score was 11 to seven. There was a stretch where I watched I watched their match, and Jonathan Pinnegar, the ref came up and said something to him. And his response to it was, he went back to his seat. It was his break. He racked the balls. His response was to go back and sit in his seat for over four minutes. So he sat in his seat for four minutes after the referee said something to him and then got up and broke the balls. Have you ever seen something like that happen? You know, he, he racked some... the balls, got Put the yeah. ball where he needed to break it from. And as he was getting ready to break the balls, the ref comes over and says something to him. So he goes back and sits down for four minutes. <laughs> it's hard to know if he was, you know, so upset that he needed a minute to regroup because it was he was playing for his tournament and he was totally disturbed. It sounds to me like he was told to speed up the match and wanted to do some type of silent protest, but that's all projection and speculation. I I know, I know, John. Uh, we've played a number of times. I've sweated some matches with him at different tournaments. I've gotten to know him a little bit. He is a he's a good guy to watch matches with, and he's a gracious winner. <laughs> so when you know he's not when things don't go his way, it's not always as easy. But yeah, it's crazy. It was it was wild. Mario, he was like a. He was actually watching the, the the match next to him and literally was not paying attention to his match at all. Basically, when he, he came over and like sat next to him, he's like, oh, I guess it's my shot and got up and ran out. It was, it was kind of funny, actually. Mario, he is like a saint when it comes to... 
He's like the uh, nothing's, nothing's gonna rattle him. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's essentially what it had to have been. So that was fun. Uh, I would like to um, I would like to I guess go through the women's division and say what happened there. I know that Kelly Fisher won. Uh, Jennifer Beretta got second place. Uh, Joanne Mason Parker got third. Um, and now we're getting to the point now where I don't remember exactly what was there because they pulled the women's bracket down. So. Uh, I, I remember Allison Fisher and Kelly Fisher had to play each other in the semifinals, so I know Allison Fisher got fifth, sixth, or uh, I guess fifth through eighth. But um, I would like to know why they pulled that down, I guess. But but how well, about I, Kelly Fisher? Is anybody going to be able to beat Kelly Fisher? With the Chinese women not being able to go to these events, is anybody in the world even able to be on the same level as Kelly? Not consistently, no. No. She's a it's level crazy. above everybody else. She's uh, she's, she's won player. everything. Yeah. She's the best player in the women's tour. Simple as that. Yeah. It's fun to watch her play. I know that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty simple. She's just simply better than everybody else. I mean, and by quite a distance. Consistently. Yeah. 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 Well, Rob, she's, Rob she's, we can't hear you. Say again. Oh, hmm. Robert's uh, volume's off. Yeah, we can't hear you, Rob. I'll, I'll just say I was gone. really – oh, go ahead. I, oh, I, I, go I was going to say that I was really impressed. Uh, Darren Appleton has been knocking at the door. Believe it or not, he hasn't had the deepest runs because he keeps just getting people running out the sets on him. Uh, and he's had some really tough draws and some really tough hill-hill losses uh, at the World Championships and at Derby and things. But uh, how good is he playing? And, uh, you know, that final match – 11-8, you know, Shaw is such a hard guy to win a set off in the finals. Um, I, I was I was kind of pulling for Darren because he's been working so hard and playing so well. Um, but uh, I'll tell you what, he's going he's gonna to have to – He's. do you feel like, Jim, in the next year he's going to pop off a big tournament here? It's so difficult, isn't it, to win one of the big ones? Um, I saw Darren, I spoke to him at the GB9 uh, last week. He's in a he's in a good place at the moment mentally. He knows his game is getting there, and he he still only feels he's at around about eighty percent. Um, so he's still got another twenty percent uh, that he thinks he can add to his game. But he is hitting the ball well, and he's playing well. I think he's ahead of schedule, and I think he he always felt he could get back to to, to playing top world class pool. I think it's happened a little bit quicker than 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 certainly than I expected. I think even the, the, than he expected. Um, do I think he can win another big one? I I I expect I thoroughly expect him to go very deep at the UK Open. Like like you mentioned, it's taking hill hill matches against people like Filler to knock him out of tournaments, you know. And he's got he's got them. If he's got that extra twenty percent that he still thinks he's got, he doesn't lose those matches, you know. And then he becomes a proper proper contender to win these big titles. Um, Again, he's just he's playing he's playing consistently well. I'll I'll be honest with you. If I was to pick a Moscone Cup team right right now, he would not be far away from getting in my team. You know, I'm I'm also adding the experience and the Darren Appleton factor to it as well. But if I was to pick a team just now, he'd be right up there um, mm -hmm. because it is taking it is taking World Championship performances to knock him out of these tournaments. It's taking Jason Shaw's. It's taking Joshua Fillers. To put him out, he's not getting beat by what we'd call like halfway house players. It's taking the top of the world to knock him out of these tournaments. He's yeah, and the people and the people that are winning sets are putting up these big runs. Whereas you put him in a Moscone Cup team with a race to five, you know, a lot of pressure, 
a lot of composure, experience, some moving, fighting for opportunities, yeah. coming with one or two big shots. I think he might be as good of a sprinter as anybody out there. Yeah. yeah. And his confidence is his, his, his confidence is high. He's getting the right results and it's 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 progressing nicely for him, I think, at the moment. And um but again, to win one of these top, top, top big tournaments is it's so tough now. So, mm. so, so, so tough. But um he'll be there. It'll take it's gonna take a it's gonna take a real good player to beat him at the UK Open. On home turf, he's enjoying the 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 matchroom uh, conditions, the tables, you know, the equipment they put out. He really enjoys it in there. Um, it's a it's it's a kind of game that suits his game, you know. That you know you're not s smashing the ball, or you've got to be good with your cue ball. You've got to be on the right side of the ball. You've got to have the right angles to play on those tables. They're slick, they're tough. You know, you can't force things around there. And he's one of the best players in the world at doing that and just putting the cue ball in the right position. He knows how to play it. Confidence is high. Nobody wants to play him. Nobody wants to play Dan Applin at the moment, I tell you. And um, he'll, play, he'll be in the World Cup of Pool. I'm pretty sure it'll be him and Jason, World Cup of Pool. So um, he's back. He is back. Yeah, good cool. to see. I know. I think every event's better with Aaron at it. Oh, yeah. Especially at the bar afterwards. He's one of the few ones that buys around. <laughs> Not many pool players buy around. Sean does. Yeah, right. So, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, I, the uh, the events apparently are online. Uh, the brackets are online. They pull them off of digital pool, which is weird. They were on digital pool the entire time, and then they pull them off of there. So, I mean, I guess it shows up. Uh, the women, uh, I guess I could give a... The Kelly Fisher first place, Jennifer Beretta second, Joanne Mason-Parker third uh taruko kukalali uh fourth allison fisher and caroline powell got fifth six uh, kim newson and vero menard get seventh eighth i mean i guess uh, another good event for the women uh ten thousand added to theirs thirteen thousand i think added to the men something like that those were good i, I think that uh, those are pretty good for the men's and the women's as far as added money I just want to see an explanation as to where the uh, the rest of it went for the amateurs. Well, where, does the the added, day, where, where, where does the added money come from? Pro, well, I'm sure it probably comes from there, but the, you know, there's probably from, probably from the open. You can probably explain a, a big chunk of the thirty thousand on the added money for the pros. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm I'm sure everything just goes into a pool and they decide to pay everything out. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Uh, at the end of the day, I think. Uh, you know, ideally, we'd find somebody who does all this stuff for free, and I'm not. You know, that just doesn't work out. Uh, just you just don't want to end up seeing that uh, somebody's lining their their pockets with a hundred thousand dollars from an event like this and giving back very little. But at the end of the day, if that is the case, that in in any in any walk of life, something that's free generally does not have the same standard or level of sure. professionalism as something that's been paid for. So if you want the best product and you want you want things to be nice and shiny, you better pay the people that are making it, polishing it for sure. you, and, uh, and doing it. You know, simple as that. Sure. So uh, the last uh, the last thing we'll talk about today, I guess, is uh, Shane Shane McMinn and uh, Chris Reinhold. Uh, they played their race to hundred, and I guess the irony is sweet as this. Don't don't call out somebody if you don't think that you're uh, able to beat them. And Shane McMinn called Chris out. Uh, about a year ago, something like that, right? Where he said, uh, basically in a in a YouTube video or a Facebook live video or something like that, basically uh, Shane McMinn said, 
how is somebody like Chris Reinhold making the Moscone Cup when he can't even beat me? And he got his opportunity. So uh, 100 to 70, uh, I guess. Any surprises there? Rob, are we able to hear you yet, by the way? We can't hear you. Uh, check your uh, your input. Make sure that your input is right. Uh, Jim, any surprises there? Um, not sure. Didn't see the match. Uh, Hundred to seventy seems a, seems seems a lot. Seems a big difference for 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 Shane uh, and Chris playing each other. But you know, Chris is more. It just seems more. You know. He just seems more of a complete player, really. He's just he's he's got that professionalism about him. He's he's got good things happening to him in his career recently. We know that these these kind of things happen in the pool world, that whether it's jealousy or whether it's people just believing they're better than they are or believing that somebody else just isn't as is not as good as what they really are. And these things happen, people get called out. I'm sure Shane probably believed he could win that match, but but he's I don't know. That that Chris won it does not surprise me that it was a thirty difference. I would not have given him a thirty. I wouldn't have given him a twenty rack star. Uh, I'd have given him. I'd, 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 if somebody said how many racks does Shane need in order to get there, I'd have said probably about ten to fifteen, but not thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Rangers? Yeah, I think that the big thing. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate Chris. Uh, that's a heck of a performance. Um, yeah, so Alex just mentioned he was clearly the better breaker and was able to run more as a result. So I want to share a couple statistics from that match. Uh, Chris made a ball successfully and did not foul 77% of the time. So 77 out of 100 breaks, he made a ball and, and did not foul. McMinn, it was 33 out of 70, which was a 40% success. So 47% instead of 77. The number of break and runs, Chris broke and ran 19 from his break whereas McMahon ran four. So what happens now, of course, he he had a few more breaks, but there was a decisive, I mean, just flat out, like if you just saw that the break stats were that, the skill difference between the players may or, you know, I don't want to talk about, you know, who's better by how much, whatever, but let's just pretend, for example, that they had a neutral breaker. Somebody broke for both players. Like, I don't think that that type of score margin can happen. I think it's a real closely contested set. Uh, I'm not saying Chris can't win. That's not, I'm not judging that yet. I'm just saying the break itself kind of denies us forever knowing because um, if if your opponent, if you're if, if that just you know Chris ran 19 from his break right off the bat, so it's 15 games directly that he broke and ran more than Shane. And on top of that, then you've got all the games where he got control of the table, played a good safety, and then and then locked it up and ended up winning in two innings. Then on top of that, you've got all the pressure that that puts on McVin knowing that. He's winning one game and then grappling for an opportunity, and he's falling further and further behind the match because he can't get the balls to break as well. I mean, mentally, all the all the pressure that that puts on you, it's just, it's 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 absolutely insurmountable. And so I look at this like um, Shane got in the ring without an effective break and was eliminated on just mathematically just by that factor. And so. Now, does that mean that Chris didn't win, outplay him, that he's not a better player? I'm not I'm not taking away anything. Um, but the break was completely decisive in this match. To, to break to break the ball 70 times and only run out four of them. That's insane. That's that's I mean. Whew. But that's you know what? Every, 
Everybody gets one because look at what happened to Chris when he played. There's two other players that Chris played races to 100 that he didn't fare so well. It was uh, it was Tyler Stott, and, and then he played uh, Danny Olson. And if you looked at Danny Olson's break and run percentage, Danny had the break absolutely wired. And as a result, Chris didn't, I think, what did he get to 62 or, I mean, 72? Like, Chris didn't do any better. Like, when he played Danny Olson, Danny beat him handily. Uh, and and so people, obviously, Danny, if they play dime ball, uh, you know, tournament-wise, it's not going to be that type of margin. But it was the same story, just reversed. So my opinion is Chris had that happen to him twice, not just once, but twice, Tyler and Danny. And I think that that motivated him and it forced him to develop his 10 ball break. Meanwhile, Shane McMahon, you know, he's playing mostly bar pool, playing guys that he could beat uh, where the break shot playing big table 10 ball. I don't think he's gone through that. So if, if that happens to Shane McMahon a couple of times, and I think Danny Olson didn't Danny Olson beat Shane McMahon a couple, two out of three sets to 25 or something like that. Anyway, now that that's happened to Shane a couple of times, maybe he gets to work on his big table 10 ball break. Um, or maybe he decides it's not his game. But I, I just think that I think that he would have to do in order for him to be competitive, he would have to do what Chris did. Um, if you have two similar skilled players that are, you know, the funny part is when you watch like the 800s matchup playing 10 ball, all of their breaks are pretty well developed. And so the breaking gaps aren't as big. But even there, you see it when Dennis plays Shane. It's, it's, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. You can't go to war without an effective break when you're at that level. What I don't understand is if you if you're gonna if you're gonna turn around and say how how can this guy possibly be considered good enough to get on the Scony Cup team, and you want to lay down a challenge, why are you playing ten ball? Why don't you, why doesn't he turn around and say play let's play nine ball? That's the Moscone Cup game. You're challenging somebody based on the fact that they're in the Moscone Cup team, but you go and turn around and say oh, well, let's let's play one pocket. I mean, well, I, I, sus- <laughs> I suspect that I, I don't know that this is true, but I suspect that uh, Shane thinks he can beat him in anything. And Chris has been working on his 10-ball break a ton yeah. the past year, and it's showing up everything. right here. He's been working on his game. You see how he scrutinizes himself on Facebook after every tournament, and that he's learning all the time, and he's looking back on his performances. He's looking back on where it went wrong, what he can improve on, the things that went good. He's really is, he's, he's, he's going through a schooling process at the moment, and you can see he's taking it very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. And he's growing from it. I mean, Chris is a good player. You know, let's not turn and say that this is this is some kind of idiot who is is not deserving to be on uh, in the running for Moscone Cup. I mean, he's played in it a couple of times. He's not been the worst player yet in the team. To be honest, has he had a Moscone Cup where he was the worst player in the team? No. No, he's the second best player on the team. And then last year, he was a four ball away from, you know, a four ball with Jeremy away from basically being the hero of the team. Yeah. I mean, of course, Sky well, played the best, but. Well, any any players out there in America that want to mouth off saying this person shouldn't be in the Moscone, this, do it then. Get off your ass, go and play the tournaments and qualify. Show that you're better. Don't just <laughs> mouth and what yes, does it, it what does it what does it prove if you beat the guy raced the hundred ten ball? Do you then turn around to well, Jeremy Jones and say, uh, I guess I'm in the team next year? No, you know you're not. Fuck her off. Go and win some tournaments. Play some nine ball. You know, well, this is the, this, like this is the stuff that drives me nuts about this. Is like the, the U.S. players, especially players like Shane McMahon, have been complaining for years and years and years about how there's no transparency and all of it is politics and all of it, you know, you know, they're just as good as the players who get on there. But now the first year that we actually have transparency, the first year we have transparency, everybody knows. Look at who is leading the U.S. right now. You have players like Nick DeLeon. You have players like uh, like Billy Thorpe, the players that just show up to all these events no matter what. And, you know, Billy's got a ban. Well, maybe he's got a ban. We still don't even know if he does or not. But, 
the point is like all these players, it's the same players that show up every single time. Now that there actually is some transparency and you know exactly how to make the Moscone Cup team, you're still nowhere to be found. The players who have always been there and the players that are always traveling and, you know, working on their game are the players that are still there doing it. So, you know, really, really it's just a, it's just a bunch of, you know, excuse making like at the end of the day, you're, you just want a reason why uh, you can't make a team that you refuse to work to get onto. Well, I think one thing that happens is a lot of these, you know, semi-pro type players, uh, they had a lot of hopes and dreams that if they got competitive at pool, great things would magically come together for them. And they felt so disappointed for so long and they, that they've just developed a cynical and jaded attitude towards pool to where when opportunities do knock, they've been telling themselves for so many years now that there's just no reward and there's no opportunity and nothing good ever happens. And this is terrible. And it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. That when opportunities present themselves, they're just not even in a mindset to where that they just don't have that positive mental outlook where they're seeing opportunities and seizing them. They're just kind of like, they're very like, I, I know a lot of players that kind of fall in that category where they're just kind of disgruntled and stealing from regional bar table tournaments and just kind of upset because, yep you know, how terrible is pool in America and they're just kind of chip on their shoulder. Um, and, and so that just doesn't really work. It, 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 you can do that. You can live how you want to live, but it's not a fun way to live. And it's doesn't lend itself to seizing opportunities. I'll just say that. Agreed. Agreed. Rob, do we have you yet? No, we still don't have you. We'll have to figure it out later out. I'm not sure what the heck's going on for you, buddy. So, uh, I guess that's kind of uh, all I wanted to talk about today anyway. So uh, last week we took the week off because I was at the Super Billiards Expo and I didn't have enough time to be able to sit down and do a podcast. So I apologize to everybody that we uh, we took a week off. But, uh, you know, that's the first week I think we've taken off in probably well over a year. So plenty still of content. Uh, we're, we're hoping to get uh, Shane Van Boning on still. So that should be coming up in your news feed soon. And... Yeah, Shane's words. I would swim through a river of piss to play Chris. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that there's going to be a rematch? Because I, I would be surprised if that with if okay, if I was Shane and I felt that I was a better player and that that I was basically just unprepared, my break didn't work. I would. I don't think that if, okay if I if I saw something at Chris where I was like man it was I wrong he plays way better than me in every part of the game I didn't sell smell any weakness I don't know if I were to run it again I don't know how I would go about putting together a winning game plan that's one thing but if you felt like no I literally the guy had a break working that I couldn't get working and I didn't even get a chance and I feel that if I could neutralize the breaking edge I could outplay him in every other part of the game and dominate if if that's the way Shane feels I smell a rematch. It would have to be nine ball. Maybe. Who knows? I, I mean, I didn't, uh, yeah, honestly, honestly, this didn't do anything for me. Like I was, <laughs> yeah, I was at the yeah, super, really. I was at the super billiards expo anyways, but like this didn't, this matchup didn't interest yeah. me at all. It, I look at this thing as just basically like uh, sour grapes, pissing competition where, you know, Shane called out Chris and, Chris showed up and played and like the idea is even if Shane McMahon wins what what then what there's there's no long-term ramifications because he's not going to make the team because he's not going to show up to any events no but I, last I like time? I like rooting for people oh you're right McMahon's not out there competing like Chris is and that's why that's why I think this is an interesting story though is because I I really believe that uh when the players are like Jim says when the players are getting in the ring showing up at the tournaments playing top players working on their game 
putting in the day-to-day-to-day effort. Uh, what I love about pool is it's not just a matter of like, oh, I'm, I'm tougher than you. You know, Tyler kind of did it to Chris when they first played. And that was one of the things I said motivated Chris. Uh, it's like Tyler was the guy where Chris was the guy that was like, I'm just a better player than you, Tyler. I'll always beat you. But then Tyler put in consistent effort, work, showing up at tournaments, working on his game, working on his break, playing top players. And then Tyler showed up and, and took Chris down. Now, here's a spot where Chris did the same thing where, you know, Shane was just like, oh, yeah, I'll always be better than you. And Chris is like, well, few, you know, three, four, five years of day-to-day work, playing top players, putting in work on different parts of his game, uh, all that. And then to see that sto- – I like that story of a guy who's up against kind of like a little bit of a bully in some ways, just putting one foot in front of the other, developing themselves in time. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the karate kid. You know, you, you, you develop your skills, you get in the ring, and, and this person that seemed like they were bigger and stronger all your life, but all of a sudden you put in the work and you learn your techniques and you face your fears. And next thing you know, you can triumph. I think it's a, a good story. I think it's, a, I mean, I like that. I like that as well. If Shane McMinn was relevant and I don't mean that in like, a, I mean, how can you not say you mean it in a non-disrespectful way, but at the end of the day, like Shane McMahon isn't playing in anything. When was, but, when but, was the last time you remember seeing Shane was, playing anything that was real? At the end of, at the, end of the day, Chris, Chris would be well within his rights. If Shane was to say, I want another crack, Chris would be well within his rights to try and say, it doesn't benefit me anyway. It's not, you're, you're not in my plans. I have a, I have a, I have a ladder exactly that it. I'm going up. I have a ladder that I'm going up. We talked about it earlier, picking players that are just a little bit stronger than you to get your game going. And you said he's not relevant. It's, I mean, in my opinion, for Chris, he probably isn't relevant because he wouldn't be in my, it wouldn't be somebody that Chris, in my opinion, that Chris should have his, ra- his radar as a target, man. This is somebody that's it's going to benefit my game playing against him. It's not going to benefit your game playing against him. You want to be you want to be going back to Tyler and saying Tyler. I'm well, that's that's where I was going to go. So he didn't know. I mean, Chris couldn't. He didn't know it was going to go that way until he did it. And sure. and if Shane if Shane has been a tough player, maybe they have some history. If Shane has always been a maybe maybe Chris has been working for the opportunity to come back and do to Shane what he did. Maybe that was meaningful to him. Uh, and, and I would, I think that the players, you know, maybe he rematches Danny Olson. Maybe he rematches Tyler. Maybe he goes after Jesus Atencio. You know what I mean? Like these are the players I think he's going to do next, but I think that, that was meaningful to him. And uh, I, just because Shane, just because Shane hasn't been competing in major events, maybe it's not, he's not relevant in our, in our conversations of what we normally focus on. But I think uh, at, you know, they go back to juniors together, man. They've known each other, you know, for a while. They've got history. And I think that in his personal journey, I think that it was meaningful that he drew a line in the sand and said, okay, you want to play, here you go. And I'm, I'm proud of him, man. I'm really proud of him. Yeah, I don't think any of those players want anything to do with Jesus at this point. Nope. But he's a – But the, the, these, these money matches are more than just money. Yeah. You've, the, these players have to be picking the correct opponents – that they can get the most out of it. Win or lose, their game gets the most out of it. They get the most benefit in the long run, you know? And um, sure. I don't think Shane has, I don't think a, a match against Shane. I, I think yet yeah, Tyler, that's a match that that, that, that that would benefit him. Would benefit Tyler as well, because Tyler's, Tyler's kind of, you know, his level's dropped a little bit. Maybe he needs that boost again. But I think these are two players that will they'll go back and forward on each other, I think, for a period of time. Um I expect one of them at a certain stage to make a to, to, to really peak and to and to jump up the rankings to jump up into that 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 seven ninety towards the eight hundred uh, kind of Fargo, um, and they can be bouncing off each other. Uh, you aren't going to get that playing against a Shane McMinn. 
sorry, Shane, if you're watching, I just, you know, you're, you're, you need to play more, in my opinion. You need to get yourself into more tournaments. You need to make yourself a relevant member of the of the of the American right. pool. I, I had to assume he just isn't interested in doing that. And there's a lot of players that like that. Events. And that's that's fair enough. If you are if you're not interested in that, that's fair enough. You do your own thing, but you've got no right to then challenge somebody uh, based on the fact that they're getting selected from a Scony if you're not prepared to put the work in in order to get selected sure. as well. You're not going to get in that team by beating them in a big set of ten ball. That's no. what, so what's the point in challenging somebody based on their Makup Nasconi status? No, 2000 and uh, was it 2000, uh, 2020, I guess, was the perfect example of that because I think uh, Tyler beat the brakes off of Chris that year and Chris made the team anyways. Again, because it's irrelevant to Moscone Cup. It's a race to 100 instead of a race to five. It's 10 ball instead of sure. nine ball. You know, it's, it makes no, it's got no effect whatsoever. As a team captain, you don't look at that and say, no, I'm going to pick Tyler. No, you don't. I mean, you shouldn't anyway, so. I mean, what, if you what, have two players that are exactly even, maybe, but... You know, the other thing that I find interesting is, like, I don't know, it's just a difference in style. So, I mean, this has been a little... Maybe maybe I feel like we're being a little hard on Shane because, to Jim's point, he's not obligated to go out and play. He can do his thing. And, you know, I mean, pool's a pretty tough endeavor to try to, like... There's a lot of reasons not to go out and compete when you're not at the highest level. So, but what I will say is I find it interesting, his attitude, where he was kind of like, oh, you know, swim across a river of piss or whatever. Like... Very, very, very confident. And I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. When I play a player, you know, I've played some sets before. I've, I don't get in the ring if I'm not confident to a point. Like if I'm not confident that if, you know, that if I don't have a game plan or if I can't see a possible way that if I go there and deliver my game and put it together and follow a good game plan, that there are some roads that lead to victory. Like I'm not going to get into a match if I've got zero, I, you know, zero possibility of winning. But every time I get into a match, I'm very like, I, I recognize how tough it's going to be. I think the outcome is in doubt. It's never over till it's over. I might, I might be op cautiously optimistic. I might be, I might even be confident that I'm going to deliver a good fight and that I have winning chances, but I never feel like, well, oh, this is going to be easy. I mean, do you guys ever feel that way? It's a, it's an interesting, do, do, do you think like when, uh, when, when top players, when Shane plays Dennis, do you think he thinks he's stealing or do you think he goes in? Like, is that a weird attitude to have, I guess, getting into a match? <laughs> I don't know. It depends. It depends how much of it is actual real and how much of it is bravado. Fair how much is it how much is it what I want my opponent to hear and how much is it what I really believe? That's fair. You know? And that's that's all part of the mind games is all part of a one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh money match, you know. And uh but I'm quite sure, I mean, I'm 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 sure he has a different perspective now as to where Chris stands <laughs> as far as a, a you know. The, the 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 quality of player he is, um, I mean, and I'm sure part of it was just jealousy. It says they don't play ten ball anymore. That just isn't going to happen. They're not going to play. I think at some point in time, it's just jealousy too. Like jealousy. Yep. Shane, just, Shane seems yeah. Shane sees Chris getting all these accolades and all this, uh, you know, this attention and bravado from playing in the Moscone Cup, and Shane doesn't think he loses to him. And even if he does think he's close with him, I think a lot of it's just jealousy. Like he wants that attention. He wants to be on that same platform that Chris is at. Because he doesn't think, even if he is better player, that it's by enough to justify all that attention. And you know, I'm sure part of the uh, the point of calling him out was just all the sour grapes that he thinks that he should get some of that attention too. But Chris and, plays every event, and Shane me, plays regional yeah. bar table events. There, there is, there is. I guess I can, I can kind of understand it a little bit. I, I mean, I can't understand. It. It's not acceptable behavior to be just jealous and calling people out and and that kind of stuff. But Chris has got himself into... The Team America is in a stage where they've picked somebody who's like a 745 Fargo. 
to play in the Moscone Cup. Demetrius is round about that level. According to Fargo, Demetrius is playing that kind of level as well. You know, there's a lot of players who who, who probably look to that and think, hold on a second. I'm like 750, 760, 740, 730. Why is why is it Chris? Why is he the one who is getting in the team? They've got they've had to go down to the 740s to find a player to get in the team. Why have they picked him? Why haven't they picked me? That's where the jealousy comes in, but that's also where you're not understanding what it means to be a professional pool player. What it what it means to make that little bit of difference when you're getting selected to be on television in one of the in, in the biggest show and tournament of the entire year and to represent your country. Chris does the right things. You know, he's been rewarded himself and Tyler to a certain extent have been rewarded for their professionalism for being proper pool players and not people going onto the internet and saying stuff like I would swim through a stream of piss in order to play against it. You don't hear that from a proper professional athlete <laughs> on openly saying that on social media for the whole world to read. That's yeah, and that's, why, that that kind of attitude is maybe why you are not the guy that's getting picked for the Moscone Cup when they've gone down and look at the seven forty Fargos. Yeah, so, and what I really, what I really, really love about this, and I kind of touched on with that story already, is that it's not about who you are; it's about what you do, and that there's there's plenty of players that may not have, you know, maybe when they were 16, 17, 18, 20, maybe not everybody was like, oh, this guy's the next Josh Filler, but. In the same way, if somebody on the you know somebody joins the wrestling team and they're they're not the varsity team and they're struggling to get in, but if they go to the weight room every day and work out and they run every morning and they wrestle every event and they and they study and they practice, what that person's trajectory is going to be is going to be totally different than some big strong guy that just kind of like dominated against his peers because he was a couple inches taller. You know, it's it's tortoise and the hare story all over. And what I really really admire about Chris and Tyler is like you know it's not their level of play. I mean, there's better players, but it's what they've done is that they've given their all they're going all in. They're trying really hard. And that's what gets recognized and rewarded. And, you know, that's why when there's, there may be a, a number of 750 players in the U S but not, there's not a number of players doing what Tyler and Chris are doing, both showing up and playing, putting in the practice, but also, you know, being professional in the sense of being ambassadors of the sport. And so when you see people that are consistently doing that, it's like, that's, that's the price of a division. And it's not politics. It's, it's, it's business. I mean, these guys are bringing the sport. They've got, you know, if, if Chris Reinhold has 10,000 Facebook followers that are vividly rooting him out of the Moscone cup, that's, that's a bottom line. It's making a positive impact to the matchroom success. And it's like, yeah. you can't, you can't diminish that and say, well, you're just there, you know, playing make-believe fool and trying to like, you know, you know, PR. It's like, yeah, there's Chris wouldn't have those followers if he wasn't putting in the work, playing the events and getting good results. And it means that the next generation coming through, when they look and see what do I need to do to give myself the best opportunities, they see that a Tyler and a Chris have been rewarded for what they've done and that becomes their role models, not other people yeah. who perhaps are not the best role models, shall we say. Yes. Yep. Yep. I agree. So I guess that's probably a good place to wrap up this discussion today. Uh, unless there's anything either of you have. Jim, how was your GB9? How about getting yourself one of these people? Yeah, those are pretty nice. Pretty sweet. Yeah, we got a bunch of them still, actually. Go on to the, so podcast, if, uh, on the podcast page and get yourself some of the, 
You got the shots as well? Yeah, I'll have to make a, a post up later on today with what I have left. I have I have a little bit of inventory of those left. But if you want yourself a custom one like Jim got, uh, just reach out to the podcast page and we'll get you hooked up with one. They're pretty cheap, actually. 70 bucks for a fully customized jersey. Pretty fun. And mine are, mine arrived four hours after I left for the GB9, so I didn't get to. But I will, I will be wearing them all at the UK Open. Different one every month. Not to mention, I think it supports the show and it supports Nate. I mean, Nate is representing, you know, um, sportswear. I'm sorry, on board. I'm, I'm going to mix it up now. I'm sorry. On board. on board sportswear. And so let's, you know, help Nate be incredibly successful in his new career. Um, you know, it's okay to give a little something back. And, you know, he's not, uh, yeah. So, all right. Um, thanks, Nate. Where does it say on board? Yeah. It says on board somewhere. Yeah. They're good quality, though. Really nice. Yeah, they are. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And until next week. Bye-bye.